Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Rob Sykes maps a century of political change in the United States using the results of the presidential elections. My thanks go to the 270 to Win website for permission to use the maps that accompany this talk. You'll find the maps very useful. They can be found at www the Mr. T, that's T H E M R T dot studio, and look in the talking history section. The aim is to do broad historical trends. There's a danger in this sort of talk, you'd end up doing the whole history of the US. But hopefully, there'll be some sort of insight into how America has become quite a divided nation. A couple of cautions, really. I'm not an expert in this. I'm very interested and have done some research, but I'm not an expert on American constitution, so I suspect there will be people with things to contribute. Not especially on the 2020 election, but we'll end there with perspectives on it and the future. I'm working to expect at some time for discussion, so I'm aiming at 50 to 60 minutes. I'd like to acknowledge one website that I got the maps from, 270 to Win, which is a great website if you're a bit of a nerd for American politics. The time span is obviously partly just neat uh, 100 years. 1920 was also the first year that women voted in the States. So in a sense, it's the start of democracy and maybe a bit more about that later on. And I suppose uh, just a little bit of perspective. Many years ago, I did some historical research into early 19th century radicals in Britain. And they looked up to America as a beacon. They didn't look up to America uncritically, largely because of slavery, which was the big stain. But they did look to it as a symbol. I share that view. I'm optimistic about what could now start to happen. A map of the states showing the 2016 result when Trump won. And the reason for showing it is to show what the pattern is. And I'm sure virtually everyone un understands the map anyway because of following the, the election in the news. But it's crucial to it. So I'm going to go just quickly over it. You see all the 50 states, red for Republican, blue for Democrat. Sometimes it's dead easy to get that the wrong way, and I might not get through the whole talk without doing that myself, as the colours are the reverse of what you'd expect from a British perspective. But a clear pattern emerges from recent elections, which is Democrats taking the West Coast and the Northeast, Republicans taking the South and Central States. The other thing the map shows is those figures under each state. Those show the number of electoral college votes allocated to each state. That's an important thing to understand in terms of how the election gets sorted. Because, of course, the American system isn't a straight election. You elect in the different states and then there's the electoral college which is a body of electors which meets every four years to elect the president and the vp you need 270 to win that goes really back to the constitutional convention of 1787 so it was a system set up before modern transport and modern communications the electors are equivalent roughly to the population, but exactly to the number of members of the House of Representatives, four through five, two senators for each state, plus the electors for Washington, D.C., making 538 in total, 270 to win. The balance of elector alters according to the 10-yearly census, but there's a minimum 
of three per state, and that has an implication, as we'll see later, in terms of smaller states having more purchasing power than larger states. When it was set up, state legislators of the colonies chose the electors, but since the early 19th century, it's been changed to the popular vote outcome in each state. Issues and distortions. The winner takes all in 48 out of 50 states. Maine and Nebraska have a slightly different system where they split the electoral college representatives according to the popular vote in the whole state and then how voters gone in each congressional district. It's never had a deciding impact on any election, but it's interesting that those two states do something different. But the issue and the distortion is you can win a state by 100 votes or you can win it by 10 million. You should get the same outcome. The state is coloured either red or blue, irrespective of the margin of victory. So that can distort it. But mostly elections that are landslides look like landslides. The map also shows the area of each state, not the population. That's the projection on the map. And effectively, that can give you a false impression of how significant a state is. There are not very many people in Wyoming, but they still have three electoral college votes. There are a lot of people in California. And they're relatively underrepresented per person. I actually did, when I first looked at this, thought, well, a bit of a joke. There are a number of states where there are more cattle than people. And I actually looked it up on the internet. And would you believe there's a Beef 2 Live website that gives you the human to cattle ratio? And there are nine states where there are more cattle than people, and they're all in the Midwest, and they're all Republican. So perhaps a Democrat strategy could be to give the vote to the cattle. Going back in time, just before 1920, this shows uh, Woodrow Wilson's second win. A quite decided victory, blue for Democrats, of course. And he won the second term on the slogan, he kept us out of the war. He then took America into the war as a result of German aggression and played a huge part in the Treaty of Versailles, which was a subject of an, a talk earlier this year. He cut a major figure on the international stage and stood up for a lot of moral values. But in the States, in the aftermath of the war, became quite unpopular. There was a bit of a reaction against the American involvement in the war and isolationism started. So this is what actually happened in 1920, a very decisive Republican victory. Uh, Warren Harding beat James Cox. Interesting perspective, if you think back to that Trump 1916 uh, map, because the Democrats take the South, and more or less only take the South. And that's a historic thing that goes back to the Civil War of the 1860s and the Reconstruction afterwards. Lincoln was a Republican, and the, the Southern states remembered that. And there was a definite phenomenon of those southern states going Democrat that was incredibly persistent until the 1960s, which is what we'll see. But it's quite remarkable, really, that they, the Democrat power base was only the South. At that time, also, you can see the little figures which show the Electoral College votes. And the biggest five in terms of population and votes were New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Ohio and Texas not Florida and not California. And shifts in the balance of population in the states are one of the themes that we'll keep coming back to. But California would not have been especially significant, whereas now it's hugely significant in terms of what happens. Harding, the Republican president, died in 1923. He was succeeded by Vice President Calvin Coolidge, and this is what happened in 1924. Not a huge difference, still a very decisive Republican victory. The one bit yellow, which was uh, Robert La Follette, who ran as a progressive and probably split the Democrat vote a bit. Only one in his home state of Wisconsin, which is the yellow state in the right in the top in the north in the central. Bit of a third party theme. People can get a lot of votes 
he got nearly 5 million votes, did Robert Lafayette, but only one state. First past the post systems, as exists also in Britain, you know, can be very unkind to third parties. First election also when all native Indians had citizenship and had the vote. Another landmark, really, in terms of democratisation. So then third election of the 20s, and yet again, a red Republican victory. Herbert Hoover beat Alfred Smith, pretty decisive victory, good economy, things going well, Democrats only in the deep south, and also two New England states. Now, hold that image, that very red image, in your mind, and this is what happens next. What has happened? Well, pretty obviously, the Wall Street crash has happened and the Great Depression has got established. Franklin Delano Roosevelt unseated Hoover with his promise of a new deal and also a subset to deal with the issues arising out of prohibition. It was a landslide against Hoover, who only took the few northeastern states. Four years on, even more of a landslide. Roosevelt was stunningly popular in the States. This 1936 victory was every state except Maine and Vermont, 523 to, to eight electoral votes. Interesting phenomena because the New Deal effectively was using public and federal money to create jobs, a sort of Keynesian solution to a problem that you don't associate with America in recent years. Note also the trend that's emerging. That this isn't a case of some states being solidly Republican or solidly Democrat. You can get whole country shifts when the whole country more or less is red or the whole country is blue. And it's not a question of elections being won by a few swing states. Also in 1936, Inauguration Day was moved from 20th Amendment to the Constitution, that is, from the 4th of March to the 20th of January. The time from to the 20th of January feels quite a long time nowadays. The time to wait until March must have felt for ages. Well, maybe it just felt a long time this time because of who was in charge in the meantime. 1940, Roosevelt broke with tradition, but not at that stage with the Constitution. He ran for a third term and won again, pretty decisively. The Republicans by that stage are winning back some states, but mostly not populous ones. So it's a pretty decisive victory. And Roosevelt had put together a coalition of different groups, the unionised working class, the big cities, ethnic minorities and the Deep South, because note that's still happening. Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina and so on are all staying resolutely Democrat, whatever happens. 1944, towards the end of the Second World War now, in which Roosevelt had taken America, and again a few more Republican gains, but not, nothing much. FDR was still popular and still seen as a war leader and really a, a remarkable run of four election victories in a row. And that's another theme. It isn't things moving, but the pendulum shifting. There's a definite pattern, Republican, then Democrat, without much shift. Roosevelt died in April 45. His vice president, Harry Truman, took over and therefore fought the next election as an incumbent. And he was expected to lose, but he didn't. Until 2016, this would be regarded as the biggest upset. The pundits and what polls there were got it wrong. The vast majority of predictions were for a Republican victory, Thomas Dewey. In the end, it turned out to be the fifth consecutive Democrat victory against the background of what was happening in terms of the rebuilding of Europe through the Marshall Plan, American money being invested in Europe, also the time of the Berlin airlift and the Cold War. And Truman won despite a split in the de Democrat ranks. There was a progressive, Henry Wallace, who got over a million votes, but nothing in the Electoral College. See the yellow down in the deep south? A state's right Democratic candidate, Strom Thurmond, took 1.2 million votes 
and 39 electoral college votes, all from the Deep South. He stood on what was nicknamed a Dixiecrat ticket and was standing because civil rights had become part of the Democrat platform. So he was uh, in favour of states' rights to impose segregation in the South and quite a breakthrough of four states. Someone, quite an interesting character is Thurmond, a Southern Democrat, Senator for South Carolina, initially Democrat, changed over to Republicans in late life, reached the age of 100 as a senator. After his death, it was revealed he'd had a multiracial child that had happened as a result of a liaison with the daughter of the family maid. So an interesting sort of almost gone with the wind story here of a segregationist who, who, who secretly was subsidising a daughter. 1948 takes us to the end of the 1940s. So I'm just going to summarise a bit of the trends up to this point. As I've mentioned already, the 19th Amendment, women got the vote in 1920, but we've got a very clear pattern. It's not swinging here and there. The Republicans won solidly in the 1920s, Democrats in the 1930s, and then also in the 1940s. The southern states remained Democrat even in the 1920s. They were the exception to the rule, except what happened with which you just described in 1948. Roosevelt won four elections in a row. At the same time, the 22nd Amendment was passed, and that now limits a person to a maximum of two terms as president. It finally came through that in 1951, because there's quite a complex process that accompanies any change to the Constitution. Electoral College votes in 1936. New York is still in the largest state by quite a long way. Pennsylvania, Illinois, Ohio, Texas, and still not quite California and certainly not Florida. That pattern of population where the Northeast is more important than will be indicated by the map. So those seem to be the, the big the sort of broad trends from the 1920s on to the 1940s. Well, what of the 50s? So we're going from that to this. Dwight Eisenhower, seen as a, a war hero, a very comfortable win for Eisenhower and the Republicans, and back to the pattern that the Democrats basically hold on to the South, and that's it. Truman had decided not to run, so it was a victory over Governor Adlai Stevenson of Illinois. In this election, he didn't even take his home state. It's against the background of the Cold War. This is the era of Joseph McCarthy and the witch hunt by communists within the government system. And weariness over the Korean War. Also, note the phenomenon that we don't associate today. The entire West Coast is Republican. It's not Democrat. A theme that also emerges when you look at the historical perspective, things do change over time. 1956, Eisenhower beats Stevenson again, even more of a landslide, 10 million vote margin. And this brings in a bit of a theme that emerges post-war of candidates, if they want to, winning second terms. It's, it's a bit of a normal pattern for the Americans to give the benefit of the doubt to the incumbent president. And two-term wins are much more common than one-term wins. In this election, 1956, both sides largely ignored the civil rights issue, which is partly why you can see what's on the map in terms of the Democrats taking that deep south. On to a really iconic election that I think many people in U3A will remember, 1960, John F. Kennedy. And Jack Kennedy beat Eisenhower's VP, Richard Nixon, in 1960. But what is often less remembered is an incredibly close election. Kennedy won in the popular vote by 112,000, or 0.17%. It was very close indeed, and there were controversies about the Democrats getting up to no good in both Illinois and Alabama, and some suspicions about Texas, where Lyndon Johnson ruled. 
I'll come back to him in a moment. So there is dispute about whether it was a fair election. And then the phenomenon that we now know, because we now look back through the prism of the Kennedys and their advocacy of civil rights and Martin Luther King, but Jack Kennedy only won in 1960 because he took the South. He didn't take liberal California because liberal California didn't really exist at that point. He did also take Texas, which was very significant. Lyndon Baines Johnson, his VP, was very significant there. And it's quite an interesting map, this, because it's not what you'd expect if you just took the perspective of 2016, 2020. One thing with echoes to today is Jack Kennedy was the first Catholic. And I think Biden is now only the second Catholic to win the presidency. Jack Kennedy was also very young as president, as Biden is now very old. You can see two bits coloured in for the first time, because this is the first election that Alaska and Hawaii became states and participated fully in the election, both with three electoral college votes. Alaska typically solidly Republican, Hawaii typically solidly Democrat. Of course, Jack Kennedy was assassinated in 1963 and replaced by his vice president, Lyndon Johnson. And this is what happened in 1964, a landslide. The Democrats took the whole country, really, and apart from the South. So the, the beginnings of the end of something. LBJ won by a landslide, partly the popularity of JFK, partly he was the incumbent by this stage, so it was a two-term thing. Also, his opponent was Barry Goldwater, who was a right-winger and portrayed as such, who wanted to reverse some of the social welfare reforms of the New Deal. And sometimes people date the growth of modern-day conservatism within the Republican Party back to Goldwater and this election, which he lost pretty decisively. In terms of the popular vote margin, it was the biggest ever win. 486 to 52 electoral college votes. But this is the last time you're going to see the map that blue. Took all of the West Coast, Texas, all the Northeast, but the core of the Deep South switched away from its traditional alliance and to the Republicans, and Goldwater also took his home state of Arizona. At this stage, also one constitutional change, 23rd Amendment, Washington, D.C., the capital, got electoral representation, three electoral college votes equivalent to the smallest state. Even then, had more people than Wyoming, uh, so you can barely see D.C. on the map. Wyoming in Midwest is quite significant, but again, more cattle than people there. Again, bear that blue map in mind as we move on to 1968, and quite a shift. Not one or two swing states, quite a lot of states. Richard Nixon's victory over Vice President Hubert Humphrey. It was quite close on the popular vote, a bit less than a million, but convincing in the Electoral College. Texas stayed Democrat, but California went Republican. What is the yellow down in the South? This is the victory there for George Wallace, I'm sure many people remember him. Governor of Alabama, hardline segregationist. He won best third party showing since the 19th century. Uh, 46 electoral votes in the college, 9.9 .9 million popular votes. So best third party showing and showing again this persistent independence of the Deep South and the persistent importance of the legacy of the, the Civil War. The whole election was against the background of turmoil, assassination of Bobby Kennedy, assassination of Martin Luther King, race riots, anti-war demonstrations, nerds for American politics amongst you might be interested in the trial of the Chicago 7, which is currently doing the rounds about events also in 1968. In terms of electoral college things, a decisive victory for Nixon, who then stood for a second term and won by a landslide. Popular vote margin of nearly 18 million, 
His opponent, George McGovern, only won two states, Massachusetts and Washington, D.C. The rest of the country is red, including newly enfranchised Hawaii. Nixon won ending the Vietnam War, the economy, relations with China, also painting McGovern as too much of a radical and progressive. Interesting sort of phenomenon also I've read, uh, a bit of a theme. Some people date some of the anti-state, anti-capital, anti-swamp in Washington, D.C., back to a distrusting government that starts right about here. The distrust over Vietnam began as a bit of a left-wing thing. The, the radicals and progressives saying the government was lying over Vietnam. But that sort of moved as well, and the distrust of central government, which hadn't been there in republicanism in the 50s and 40s in the same sort of way, becomes quite current. And obviously that's a theme behind Trump's victory, playing on the anti-Washington, anti-swamp sort of sentiment. California, population growing. It's now overtaken New York. Also in 1972, 18-year-olds got the vote, 26th Amendment. Nixon, of course, resigned in August 74, two years into his presidency, over the Watergate affair, but even more so over the cover-up. He resigned to avoid impeachment. He was replaced by his vice president, Gerald Ford, who in turn had replaced Spiral Agnew. So Gerald Ford became president, the only president who'd never been on a presidential ticket in a general election. Because when the VP went, as Spiro Agnew did, the replacement was nominated by the president and confirmed by the vote of both houses. So Gerald Ford went into the next election as an incumbent, but an unelected incumbent. But a really quite interesting thing happened in the next election. Again, look at the decisiveness of, of Nixon's victory. And then this is 1976, blue, Democrat victory. Jimmy Carter, ex-governor of Georgia, beat Gerald Ford with an intriguing pattern because he took the South and he wasn't a segregationist. He ran as an outsider. It was quite close in the popular vote, 1.7 million, but pretty definite in the Electoral College. And he took all of the South, including Texas. You'd look sometimes to see if a third-party candidate was splitting the vote and allowing this to happen, but there wasn't one. So it implies a degree of regionalism, of wanting someone from your own area of the states. And Jimmy Carter, as an outsider, managed to ride on that quite an interesting phenomenon. It's almost like it's an east-west split when you just look at the colour on the map, as opposed to the split that we now know about. 1976 was Jimmy Carter, who turned into a one-term president, because in 1980, he faced Ronald Reagan, ex-governor of California, and Reagan had a decisive victory, again taking a large proportion of the country. A landslide in the college, 8 million popular vote. So you've got Ronald Reagan, who was a very effective campaigner, if you just measure it in terms of votes. Because this is what happens in the next election. Reagan against Mondale. Normally, presidents get two terms. Reagan decisively did. Total landslide. He took 49 out of the 50 states. He took 525 out of 538 Electoral College votes. Interesting thing about Reagan, though, is in terms of what's happening with Biden in terms of age. At the age of 73, he was the oldest till Biden. Third victory for the Republicans in a row, George H. Bush, Reagan's vice president. He beat Michael Dukakis pretty easily in terms of the popular vote. And an interesting sort of sidelight onto the current situation. He's the first incumbent vice president to win in 152 years. There hasn't been one since either. There have been vice presidents who took over from the president and then won. So when people talk rather glibly about Kamala Harris being in pole position 
for the presidency after Biden. That's not what history shows, but of course, historical precedents are there to be broken. A few general trends then, 50s on to the 80s. You get the continuation of these whole country shifts, by which I mean that large numbers of states move, not just a few states, and you get the map pretty much coloured in one colour. Maybe for discussion, a bit of a comparison with the United Kingdom. You have a relatively unexpected Democrat victory in 1948, equivalent to the 1945 Clement Attlee victory, which was unexpected by many. And so Democrat Labour victories in first post-war elections, Conservative in the 1950s, liberal social reforms in the 1960s, and then the free market conservatism of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in the 80s. Is it coincidence? Are the deeper forces at work? Also within this period, quite clearly, the Deep South switches from Democrat to Republican, and that sticks. That doesn't change. Although there are whole country shifts, Apart from 1964, the landslides are Republican landslides. There are seven Republican victories compared to only three Democrat ones in this sort of period from the 50s to the 80s. Bit of an update on how the Electoral College is changing. California now decisively the largest state. New York, 36, Texas, Pennsylvania, and Illinois as the top five. Florida now also growing at 21. So, bit of a pattern there. 1992, again, an interesting phenomenon, this. Bill Clinton from Arkansas in the South beat George H. Bush. Pretty clear victory, over 5 million in the popular vote. And Clinton took elements of the Deep South and also the Midwest. And again, it begs the question, to what extent is that regional feel and against the Northeast and against Washington significant and broader than simply the racial card? Clinton took places like Louisiana and Georgia. He also took the West Coast. Beginnings of a new pattern here of the West Coast becoming Democrat and then about to stay. But as I say, I think the more intriguing one is the South. There is a third party candidate here who can help to explain it. Ross Perot. Remember him? Independent businessman from Texas. He got nearly 20 million votes, but didn't take a single state, which again shows the influence of the first past the post system being unkind to third parties. He had a moderate pitch as a businessman, although in later life he endorsed Republicans rather than Democrats. That split in what maybe was a Republican vote might explain some of Clinton's victory, but doesn't seem to explain all of it. The polls are pretty ambiguous about it. Six, and Clinton repeats his victory with an increased majority against Robert Dole. And now we're beginning to get the pattern that we now see as familiar of the West Coast being Democrat, the Northeast being Democrat, Republican strength in the South and Central states, but certainly Clinton still taking that strip of midway states, Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, and so on. Low turnout, 49%, again, might be significant. Moving on to the new century, that was what happened with Clinton, who had served out two terms, that's what happened when George W. Bush beat Al Gore in the 2000 election. There was the long-running dispute over hanging chads and irregularities in Florida. It was the closest election since 1876. In the end, the Supreme Court stopped a recount in Florida. Five to four majority, so pretty close there. And officially, Al Gore lost Florida to George W. Bush by 537 votes. George W. Bush won the Electoral College vote by 271 to 266. So Florida would have shifted it quite easily. And there were nearly 3 million green votes in the pot as well. Statistic I'll come back to, Al Gore won 
the popular vote. So the person who got most Americans voting for them did not become president as a result of the electoral college system. He won the popular vote by over half a million, but lost in the electoral college. 2004, George Bush gets his second term fighting John Kerry, wins by three million votes. It's not a landslide by any means. It looks a little bit like that on the map. But then there's distortion of highly popular states sometimes not appearing very big in area on the map. There was a, a dispute in Ohio, actually, that would have tilted it the other way, but stood as a, as a Republican victory. War on terror, of course, was a background theme. 2008, Barack Obama beats John McCain by nearly 10 million votes. Pretty decisive victory. He wins the election because nine states changed. Nine states flipped, to use the American term. Beginning of a pattern of a small and reducing number of states deciding elections. You're beginning to get a pattern whereby there's some states that are safe and some states that are not, but the states that are not safe are becoming an increasing minority. You're not getting the whole map coloured in one colour anymore. 2012, Obama gets his second term victory against Mitt Romney, reduced majority, but still five million in the popular vote. He only lost three states, North Carolina, Indiana and Nebraska. Only four states in this election were decided by less than 5%. In other words, states are now becoming firmly Republican or firmly Democrat, an indication of, uh, of effectively divided America. Which brings us on back to 2016 and Trump's victory over Hillary Clinton. And linking with the Al Gore point, uh, on this occasion, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.9 million. Not a small margin, but Trump won it as a result of the Electoral College arithmetic. Only six states switched. The traditional swing states of Florida, Iowa and Ohio. But also Trump won because in addition to taking those, he took the three so-called Blue Wall or Rust Belt states up in the Northeast. Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. He took them by very narrow margins, less than 1% in all cases. It's indeed been calculated that if in just those three states, 78,000 people had voted differently, it would have changed the outcome. And 78,000 out of a popular vote margin of 2.9 million is, is not that many but it will go down as a significant mistake on the part of Hillary Clinton, who I understand barely campaigned in those states. Coming now to present day, 2020 in a slightly different sort of map, which I'll explain. What you're looking at there, and I chose this because I think it explains what I'm trying to say a little bit better than the final result map. This is from the 270 to Win website, and it shows what the predictions of pundits were in August 2020, so several months before uh, the election. Those states coloured in grey were regarded as toss-ups. They could go either way, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Ohio. The light colour blue or light colour red are leaning either Democrat or Republican and judged to be likely to go that. The strongly coloured blue and strongly coloured red are safe. Toss-up states are where there's less than a 5% margin. Leaning, it's less than 10% margin. And if you look at that, the state that the pundits decided were going to decide it, it's a pretty accurate map. In the end, what happened is that Trump took Ohio, Florida and North Carolina, but Biden took Georgia and Arizona. But crucially, he took that band of states that are light blue from Pennsylvania to Michigan to Wisconsin. And those states on their own were enough to secure him victory. And what I'm going to do is deal with the general trends from 1990 to 2020 and then come back to 2020 in the future. 
new normal. Democrats take the northeast and the west coast. Republicans take the south and the central states. Elections are then decided by relatively few swing states. Most states are safe. But also there's another phenomenon going on. We had a visit to Tennessee and some friends there were explaining that Memphis and Nashville are Democrats. The state as a whole is, is firmly Republican. Within safe states, you get pronounced variations between the cities and the rural areas. Another phenomenon, in 30 years and eight elections, Republicans only win the popular vote once. Bush's second victory. That reality lies behind some things we'll come back to. The pattern has shifted. Democrats win five elections, Republicans three. Electoral college now, pretty decisive shift where California and Texas are the top two states in population terms. Florida third, New York now down to fourth. A new normal, one of the important things about historical perspective, I think, is to show that things do change over time. A bit more detail on the 2020 result. Biden effectively won because of three states which had flipped to Trump, flipping back. Not by huge margins, but he wins them by more than Trump won them by. And in addition, he took two others also, Arizona and Georgia. So only five states change hands. Largest vote ever, 81 million. Popular vote margin of just over 7 million. One of the issues of this election and for the future is what this means for the Electoral College. As you remember, 538 electors choose the president. Originally, they were seen as independent, but not now. Up until 2016, there were five occasions when the winner of the national popular vote didn't become president. There were three in the 19th century. Then the instance of the Al Gore in 2000 that we've mentioned. Then the instance of Hillary Clinton beating Trump by a significant margin but losing the election. Then also a detail about uh, electors, but it hasn't impacted so far. This system that was set up in the 18th century allows for electors potentially to vote against the way they've been delegated to vote. They're called faithless electors. There have been 165 of them in 58 elections. Never changed anything, but it's something that does happen. As far as I can tell, in the last election, there weren't any. Electoral College on a popular vote. It would have been a travesty if Biden hadn't won, but it wasn't that significant when it comes to the Electoral College. He won only by narrow margins there. His popular vote margin was high, to 7 million. His overall vote was the largest there ever has been, but Trump's was the second largest there ever has been. Both turned out more. What seems to have happened in the polls, as far as I can see, is that the polls picked up on the Democrat surge in votes, but didn't pick up on the Republican surge in votes. Biden wins reasonably solidly in the Electoral College, certainly as much as Trump did in 2016. One of the issues for the future is whether this system is going to change or not. Now, as I said, the Electoral College gets changed according to the 10 yearly census. So the 2020 census will lead to a reapportionment of the congressional districts, which in turn decide on the number of Electoral College votes. Potential gainers are Texas, Florida, and a number of others. Potential losers actually includes California, despite an increase in population. Because if some states gain, other states lose. It's been calculated that this would have advantaged Trump by about three votes, so it wouldn't have been significant. But it deepens what is already uh, quite an issue which is that the popular vote is no longer matching with what the Electoral College comes out with. It's happened twice now by quite significant margins. Constitutional change needs two-thirds support in both houses and then ratification by three-quarters of state legislators. So wholesale constitutional change is not likely. More limited reform is possible. There is a thing called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which is a bit of a mouthful, 
but basically it's where individual states can opt to use their electors to vote for the winner of the popular vote, not the, whoever won in that state. And it's a scheme that would only take effect at the point at which the number of states signing up to it would have equated to more than the 270 needed to win. It's disputed whether legally this could go through simply on the uh, say-so of state legislators for their individual states. So it's an open question. According to Wikipedia, 15 states have signed up to it. I think we, we're going to hear more about the Electoral College system. Certainly in Biden's case, if in the three states he won by the narrowest margins, under 50,000 people had voted the other way, the election would have been a tie in the Electoral College. It then goes to the House of Representatives. Another issue, voter suppression. In 2016, some of the complacent statements about Hillary Clinton was Hillary was going to win because, quote, there wasn't enough angry white men. But there are enough angry white men if you suppress the right of others to vote. Now, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, one of LBJ's, struck down most of the ways whereby black people, because it effectively was black people in the South, were denied the vote. But in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down elements of the Act, which gave back to individual states more ability to influence elections. And these can be quite significant. I'm just taking one example here. Florida, a swing state. The law there removed voting rights for released felons, possibly up to a million or so, who were disproportionately black, sometimes very minor offences. 2018, Florida voters passed in a referendum an amendment that all but murderers and sex offenders would have the right to vote on release. But the Republican-controlled state legislature defined completion of sentences to include all fines, fees and penalties. Some of these people were only in jail because they couldn't pay the fines, fees and penalties. It is a, quite a significant reduction of those people who are able to vote. Another area where this ha is happening, the Economist cited a number of studies showing quite significant closure of polling stations, and it was very geographically concentrated in Texas, Arizona and Georgia. And the polling stations that were removed were in black areas and Hispanic areas. There's legal methodology behind all of this, but there is an ongoing issue of voter suppression. It was worst in the Democrat South up to the 1960s. Another issue currently affecting the situation and will do more so in the future, the Hispanic vote. Hispanics, Latinos are now 17.8% of the national population and they're the largest majority projected to grow to 30% by 2050. They're very significant electorally in states already. 14 million in California is one of the reasons that California is as it is. 47% in New Mexico. Potential impact in Texas, which is the second largest state. And there is a bit of a phenomenon there of urban Texas and Hispanic Texas voting Democrats, and the votes have become much closer together. Arizona as a potential target for the Democrats. At the moment, the vote splits. About two-thirds Hispanics vote Democrat, a third vote Republican. But that could change. And one of the phenomena of 2020 is there were minor shifts towards Republicans in some areas. So changing ethnic mix in the states is going to change things. Florida remains an important swing state. It's an interesting one because the Hispanic vote is split and those who are from Cuba are traditionally Republican. It was seen as a state that Biden might win, but he didn't. Trump won by an increased margin, in fact, by 3%. Florida and Ohio, traditional swing states, seem to be becoming more Republican. Crucial for the future will be the Midwest, those three blue wall states. Taking them back on their own was enough to secure Biden's victory. Biden, of course, grew up in Pennsylvania 
and he took those three states, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, enough to win without Georgia and Arizona. The Georgia vote is maybe the South is changing a bit. I won't dwell on this national exit poll from 2020, significant gender difference. Women didn't like Trump as much as men did, although the actual margin of difference is a bit less. And the vote showing a majority of the white vote went to Trump, Hispanic two thirds, one third. Younger people voted Democrat in much larger numbers. And there was that significant split between those who had a degree and did not have a degree, a new way of splitting it. Two states, the two largest, Texas and California, the number of electoral college votes growing over time, but also things change. Texas early on was a Democrat state. It's now a solidly Republican state but by a closer margin than you'd think. Trump won in Texas by around about 600,000 margin. Same thing for California. Apart from in the Roosevelt years in the 30s and 40s, it was a Republican state. Things do change. It's now pretty solidly, well, no, very solidly, Democrat. The popular vote margin that Democrats won by in California was over 5 million. It's, it's not close. Votes being piled up in California is one of the reasons why the Electoral College system is not operating that fairly. Which brings us to the end of the question. 2024, what's going to happen? People are positioning themselves already. Long-term trends or short-term events and personalities? What will Trump and what will Trump's family do? Things do change. Potential points for discussion are that change to the divided nation where things are decided by relatively few states. Is there a case for change in the electoral college system? Is the South changing? Georgia result, could that be replicated in North Carolina, say? Two terms is the norm for a president who wants them. But what about a president who's 78 in his first year? There's a whole set of issues about Trump and the Republican Party and piles of other things as well. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.